0: Today, I am discussing the case of missing 23-year-old Leah Peebles. In 2006, Leah moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, looking for a fresh start. But just a few weeks after she made the move, she disappeared. When her father made the trip to New Mexico to search for her himself, he discovered a world of crime he'd never experienced before. Despite recognizing the danger he was putting himself in and receiving a death threat himself, He dug deeper into this world he was convinced his daughter was trapped in, in hopes of bringing her home. In addition to my large disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast, I'd like to add that this episode in particular heavily discusses the topics of sexual abuse and addiction. So if you are easily triggered by these topics, you might want to skip this episode. I'd also like to provide some resources right now. If you or anyone you know needs assistance dealing with a sexual assault, I highly recommend contacting RAIN. RAIN is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and they do have a free hotline you can call 24-7 if you need help. The number is 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know needs assistance with substance abuse or mental health, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's 24-7 hotline at 1-800-662-4357. Now, both of these organizations are based in the United States, so I will post some international resources in the episode description as well. But without any further introduction, this is the case of Leah Peebles. Leah Rochelle Peebles was born on January 16, 1983, in Fort Worth, Texas. She was the first child of John and Sharon Peebles, and by all accounts was just absolutely adored by them. By the time Leah came along, the Peebles had already been married for over three years and had established a nice life for themselves in Fort Worth. John worked for an aerospace manufacturer called Bell Textron, and was very focused on his family. Sharon would eventually work as a floral designer for TCU Florist. When Leah was just a year and a half old, her grandmother entered her into a local beauty pageant. She actually ended up winning Miss Photogenic for her age range. John would describe Leah as just a happy, adventurous little girl who loved dancing. She was just a normal kid. But then, one day, when Leah was just four years old... The people's world came crashing down on them. Leah, John, and Sharon were all watching a TV show that discussed sexual molestation of children. This program explained what a good touch was and what a bad touch was. And all of a sudden, Leah begins crying her eyes out. John and Sharon are a little confused. And then John just eventually turns to Leah and asks, Has someone touched you like that? According to John, Leah just begins to cry even more, and she says yes. Eventually, they discover that a distant but very trusted relative had been sexually molesting Leah for some time. As far as I could find, no legal action was taken against this relative. In the interviews I've seen with John and Sharon Peebles, it seems like they were just kind of hoping that since Leah was so young, she'd be able to forget these horrific experiences. Given Leah's intense reaction to that video, and something we will learn later on, it seems that this trauma never fully left her. This isn't uncommon. Of course, every case and every person is different. But these things can stick with people for a lifetime. And this is unfortunately a large part of Leah's story. However, it does appear that Leah had a happy childhood after this. She began school, her parents gave her two baby brothers, and she seemed to be developing normally. Leah would eventually attend Carter Riverside High School, where she did very well. School came easy for her, and she mostly aced her classes. She was also involved in a ton of extracurricular activities, including cheerleading, drama, and yearbook. At this stage in her life, John Peebles described her as brave, bold, and willing to try anything at least once. But then, one day when Leah was 14, something happened that would change the entire course of her life. A boy from her school came over to hang out at her house. Apparently, this was kind of like with the entire family. Eventually, the boy does go home, but he comes back later that night. My heart just breaks for Leah. This boy knocks on her window, so she sneaks him in. I know when I was 14, I would have thought this was just so romantic, that this boy just couldn't contain his excitement to see me and had to come back for one last kiss, but that's not at all what happens to Leah. After she sneaks this boy in through her window, there is nothing romantic about their interaction, and he ends up raping her. Leah doesn't tell anyone right away, but her parents see an obvious change in her behavior, She's very upset, and she's just not like herself. So eventually her parents are like, what is going on? And she tells them that she'd been raped three days prior. Her parents do call the police and take her to the doctor immediately for an exam. The doctor was able to see that there was physical trauma, but there was no semen or any other physical evidence to point to this boy. When the people speak to police and the prosecutor's office, they basically discourage them from pressing charges, stating that one, there was no physical evidence to point to this boy, and two, since Leah let him in willingly, it would be a hard case to prove. The prosecutor also told them that Leah's name would be dragged through the mud should they wish to proceed. So, Leah and her parents decide to not press charges. It appears that the only form of punishment the boy received was switching schools. I do want to state that if you have been or encounter a situation where you are being told that you shoulder the responsibility of your rape because you invited that person into your home, that's complete crap. And it is 100% not your fault. Leah did go through counseling after this. But unfortunately, this incident sparked a lot of Leah's memories of being assaulted as a child. And she began to spiral. She told her parents that she'd just felt dirty for her entire life. Not long after, she disengaged with school. Her grades went from A's to C's to her being unsure if she'd graduate at all. She dropped out of all of her extracurricular activities and began drinking and using drugs. By her junior year, when Leah was about 17, she was no longer this blonde, bubbly cheerleader that we see in her pictures. She began dyeing her hair, dressing more alternative, and getting deeper and deeper into drugs and drinking. Now, everything kind of came to a head when Sharon went to Leah's school to bring her something she'd forgotten at home. Sharon walked to Leah's classroom and saw that she was asleep and drooling on her desk. When she began speaking to her daughter, she realized that something was seriously wrong. Sharon ends up taking Leah to the doctor, and the doctor says that Leah needs to go to the emergency room. He says it looks like she could be overdosing on a cocktail of pills. So Leah is taken to the emergency room, and it's so bad that she has to stay there for an entire week. There isn't a ton out there about this time or how Leah really recovers, but she does graduate from high school in 2001. According to her parents, she just didn't have any motivation to move out, or really do anything other than party. She's basically sleeping all day and going out all night. Eventually, her parents come to her and say, listen, we think it's time you at least get a job and try to think about what you want to do with your life. Leah does get a job at a nice restaurant in the city, but her addiction just takes over. One day, John and Sharon get a call from one of Leah's friends saying that she's using about $80 a day worth of heroin. Leah's parents stage an intervention, and eventually Leah breaks down. She rolls up her sleeves, shows them the track marks from all the injections, and breaks down crying, telling her dad that she just can't stop using. Leah's parents take her to the Fort Worth Hospital to detox, and then enroll her in the Fort Worth Teen Challenge. This is a Christian residential drug and alcohol treatment facility for women. Leah stays here for 21 months. While she's in treatment, she graduates from cosmetology school and gets a job at a local hair salon. This is huge. Staying clean for 21 months is no easy feat. But unfortunately, Leah does relapse. She doesn't tell her parents this, but they suspected it. Leah began exhibiting some of her old behaviors. And she even came to one of her brother's football games really high, falling flat on the concrete in front of everyone. Sharon would also periodically go through Leah's room to specifically look for drugs. And one day she finds a purse hidden in the back of Leah's closet. It's just filled with baggies, needles, and bloody tissues. At this point, John says Leah was using anything she could get her hands on. Meth, coke, heroin, pills, basically whatever she could find. In August 2004, officers are called to investigate a report of gunshots being heard in the area. They find Leah's boyfriend shooting an assault rifle into a creek bed. Leah is waiting in the car with another woman when an officer sees Leah throw a bag of meth out the window. She is then promptly arrested for possession of a controlled substance. Leah was sentenced to 30 days in jail, and was now a felon. Leah would be arrested again in March 2006. This is when she was pulled over for failing to use her turn signal. When police search her car, they find uncovered syringes and powder cocaine. This time, she's given 80 days in jail, and she's also fired from her job at the salon. John Peebles has stated that her employer really cared for Leah, and they were really trying to work with her. But things got really bad. She'd leave her shift saying that she was going on a short smoke break and would just never come back. So this was kind of the last straw for them. When Leah gets out of jail this time, she's now 23 years old, and she tells her parents that she desperately wants to get clean and change her life. Sharon and John offer to put her in another rehab facility, but Leah says no. She wants to completely change her life. She wants to leave everyone she knows in the drug scene behind and just start fresh. So, Leah decides to go live with some family friends 10 hours away in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her parents support her decision. They buy Leah a Volkswagen Beetle, help pack up Leah's belongings, and John Peebles drives with his daughter all the way out to Albuquerque. John would say that the three days it took them to drive from Fort Worth to Albuquerque were some of the best that he'd had with his daughter in a long time. She was clean, she was excited, and it was just overall a great trip where they really bonded together. When they get to New Mexico, John even stays for a few days to help her get settled. Before John leaves, he gives Ashley and Todd Warren, the family friends that Leah was staying with, a bunch of cash for Leah. This way, she can have some pocket money as she looks for a job. But eventually, John does have to get back to work in Fort Worth. When Leah is saying goodbye to her father at the airport, they have this very intense moment. John tells Leah that she can call him anytime about anything. Leah tells him that he probably won't want to know all of the things that she's up to. But John looks at Leah and says he wants to know everything. He says he loves her and accepts her no matter what happens. But John knew deep down that something was very wrong. In 2009, he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, I wish I'd never left her. It haunts me every day. That's been the hardest thing for me to deal with. I could see how scared she was. I wish I hadn't left her." This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by June's Journey. Everyone loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. In this game, you step into the role as June Parker, and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of your sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. I've been playing June's Journey for a long time, and yes, I love uncovering hidden objects in these really fun scenes, but I also like putting together the pieces of this puzzle. I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of my favorite parts of playing June's Journey is chatting and playing with, or against, if I'm honest, usually I like playing against other players by joining a detective club. And if that's not enough for you, you can join a detective league to put your skills to the test. I am also deep into building my island, and I mean deep you guys, I've been playing for a very long time and it's just really fun to see it grow. I usually find myself playing on little breaks during the day or at night before I go to bed. If you like games, if you like solving mysteries, I really think you're going to like June's Journey. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by Quince. Quince has transformed how I shop. I'm not gonna lie, I don't love paying extravagant prices for things that don't last. But imagine upgrading your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. They offer things like a 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater for $50, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is, all quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Basically, what they do is partner with the top factories. That cuts out the cost of the middleman, that way they can pass on the savings to us. And what I really love is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I have a ton of stuff from Quince. Right now I'm really on a mission to just have some great basics in my closet. So I picked up a lot of t-shirts, some tank tops, and I definitely got a 100% mulberry silk pillowcase. It is absolutely worth it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash justice to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com justice. It wasn't an easy transition for Leah. Ashley Warren would state that she could just tell Leah was extremely disappointed in herself. Like she knew that she was letting down everyone in her life. But then, Leah gets some good news. In the very first week she was in Albuquerque, she got a job at the Flying Star Cafe. And she'd be starting the following week. Now, there are actually a few of these cafes in the Albuquerque area. But this location in particular was very popular with police and courthouse employees. Right before Leah is scheduled to start working at this cafe, she calls her dad to say happy birthday, and to also ask for money for a new uniform. John is pretty confused. He says that the money that he gave the Warrens should have been enough to last her a few months, but Leah says looking for a job cost more money than she thought. John is skeptical, concerned, and pretty strapped for cash at this point. But he agrees to mail Leah the last $25 he had in his wallet that day, and he says he'll get her the rest when he gets paid. On May 22, 2006, Leah leaves the Warrens' home to go on a date with a man that she met at the cafe. That night, Leah calls Ashley Warren and leaves her a voicemail, saying that something happened and she would call back later. But Leah never calls, and she never comes home. The next day, the Warrens call Leah's parents to let them know what was going on. The Pupils give it 24 hours, thinking maybe Leah was just out partying. Of course, during this time, everyone's calling Leah's phone like crazy trying to get a hold of her, but it just goes to voicemail. On May 24th, Leah's parents do call the police to report her missing. John is really honest with the police, and he says that he was afraid that Leah was just out there somewhere using again. As the police begin their investigation, so does John. John begins looking through Leah's MySpace page. He's calling all of her friends, and he just comes up with nothing. So, John calls Leah's cell phone provider, and they basically agree to give him everything. When John gets Leah's call log, he sees that she's made over 170 calls in just a few days. But he sees one number in particular that she was calling a lot. John calls the number, and it's the cousin of the man that Leah went on the date with. As far as I could find, this man's name has never been published. But the cousin is very cooperative, and gets John in contact with this man. The man is also very cooperative and forthcoming. He says he didn't meet Leah at the cafe, but they actually went to a really seedy motel on the outskirts of town. He says that they were intimate, but after that, she just kind of disappeared. Ultimately, John Peebles and the police don't seem to believe that this man has any connection to Leah's disappearance. So, I imagine that's why his name has never been used. After this, John goes back to the phone company and asks if he can get access to her voicemail, and they agree. Now, I have to say that this phone provider, whoever they are, seems awesome. I get that privacy is important, But having access to this information was absolutely vital, because they get probably the biggest break in the case from these records. John sees that Leah has quite a few voicemails from an auto repair shop asking her to come pick up her car. John actually makes the trip to Albuquerque to go to this shop in person. Now, this shop is in a part of Southeast Albuquerque that was apparently really bad, and known as a place where a lot of drug dealers, drug users, and sex workers frequent. When John gets to the shop, he speaks with the mechanic. He explains that Leah apparently ran over a median, and the car was basically undrivable. Ultimately, no clues are found in the car. But the mechanic tells John that when he saw Leah, it was obvious that she was high, and her arms looked really bad. He also told John that Leah was a sex worker, and he'd seen her behind a local video store soliciting. This is when John Peebles really begins to dig deep into this area and Leah's lifestyle. John is literally hitting the pavement looking for answers. He marches right over to that video store with Leah's picture in hand. When he shows it to the employees, they say, Yes, we know that woman. We saw her about three weeks ago. They explain to John that they had to ask her to leave the lot, and like the mechanic said, they add that she just didn't look good. This is obviously very upsetting, but John feels like he's on the right track to finding Leah. So, John just begins canvassing this area walking along Central Avenue. He goes to every business and every person he can to show them Leah's picture. Eventually, John also begins to look at strip clubs in the area and at one club, he gets another lead. One of the dancers tells John that they've seen that girl. She was trying to get a job there, but she didn't go by that name. She went by the name Maya. John feels like he is closer than ever to finding his daughter, but he was running out of time. Eventually, he does have to go back to Texas so he doesn't literally lose his job. Money was tight before, and it's even tighter now. So, John relays all this information to Detective Ida Lopez with the Albuquerque Police Department. He goes back to Texas and waits for the call that they found Leah. Now, it does seem that Detective Lopez is dedicated. She begins looking at homeless shelters, needle exchanges, anywhere she thinks Leah might have gone to request services. She also sends Leah's picture to officers in the area, but she comes up with nothing. And then one day, in August 2006, Lopez is stuck in traffic and she sees a very pretty girl walking down the street. She thinks it could be Leah. But by the time she's able to make a U-turn in all of the traffic, the girl is gone. At this point, John is just crawling out of his skin in Texas. So over Labor Day weekend, he goes back to Albuquerque to finish what he started, Unfortunately, it was looking like this second trip wasn't going to be as fruitful as the first. After nine days, John feels that the trail that was once so hot was now cold. But right when John is ready to pack it up and head home, he gets a major break. John is leaving this motel, the same motel that he thinks Leah might have been staying at. Then John is approached by a sex worker, and he's like, no, that's not what I'm looking for, but can you please take a look at this picture of my daughter and tell me if you've seen her? And this woman is like, oh yeah, I know this girl. She then calls over another woman, who confirms that she's seen the woman too. But she says, that's Maya. She was here just about a week ago. These women tell John that Leah was working for a man, a pimp, at a truck stop in the area. So, between the story he got from the woman at the strip club and these women, John is confident that Leah was now going by the name Maya, and is probably still in the area. So, he calls Sharon back home, tells her the good news, and he says that he's going to stay for a few more days, find their daughter, and bring her back home. John stays in a motel right across the street from the truck stop, and watches it 24-7 looking for Leah. John's heart just drops. He was obviously upset that his daughter was doing sex work to satisfy her addiction, but now he's really seeing this world of sex trafficking at this truck stop. He says that the women there weren't living. They were barely eating, making no money, and basically just surviving. Now, you guys, please forgive me if I get some terms wrong here. As always, please feel free to reach out and kindly educate me. What I'm trying to say here is it's obvious Leah wasn't voluntarily performing sex work to make money, but was being controlled and trafficked by this man, as were many other women. As the days went by, John says that he began to see some patterns of when the women came and left the area, but they would also switch it up after a certain amount of time. He also noticed that the same man was coming back over and over again to meet with these women. He becomes certain that this is the man that the women said was Leah's pimp, it also appears that this man was selling drugs. John's not ready to go to the police yet. He instead goes to the women that he'd spoken with previously, and begs them to give a message to this man to give to Leah. He says, please, just let them know that I have her car and I want her to have it. Tell them she doesn't even have to come home. I just want her to have the car. I want to talk to her and make sure she's okay. Then I'll leave. It seems clear that this man did get the message, because quickly after, pretty much everyone stopped talking to John. So John goes to the police with this information. John and the police are able to find out exactly who this person is. He went by AJ, but his legal name is Donald Sears. Detective Lopez also stakes out the truck stop. And eventually, she calls in a few officers and they make some drug busts. But ultimately, they don't find Leah. And no one would or could confirm that she was even there in the first place. After this, the area really clears out. John doesn't see any of the sex workers that he was speaking with previously. And the ones he did wouldn't talk to him. Then one day, a woman approaches John and says, Listen, if you don't leave, we will literally kill you. At the same time, Sharon Peebles gets a call back in Fort Worth, Texas. She says a random man from that truck stop called her. He says that John should not go home, because Leah had just gotten in a truck headed for Las Vegas. Ultimately, it does seem that this call may have just been a way to get John out of Albuquerque. But that didn't stop John from looking anyway. John would use all of his vacation and sick days making trips to look for Leah. Eventually, in addition to looking in New Mexico and Vegas, John will look in California and Arizona as well. But ultimately, he didn't find his daughter. Eventually, AJ, aka Donald Sears, is arrested for drugs in Albuquerque. He's interviewed by both Detective Lopez and John, but he insists that he has no idea who Leah is. Detective Lopez says there just isn't any proof linking Leah to this man. And as far as she's concerned... The last credible sighting of Leah was when she dropped off her car at the mechanic. The months would turn into years, and it wouldn't be until February 2009 that the Peebles are contacted about Leah again. This is when they get a call, saying we need you to submit DNA. Remains have been found, and we think they could be your daughter's. On February 2nd, 2009, a woman was walking her dog near a construction site where a new residential area was being developed when her dog found what looked like to be a human bone. She immediately contacted police, having no idea she'd just stumbled across one of the largest crime scenes in American history. The thing is, they didn't just find one set of remains. The police found a dumping ground. Ultimately, 11 victims would be identified. They were all women and girls, ranging in age from 15 to 31 years old. Most were Hispanic, most were struggling with addiction issues, and most were sex workers, but none of them were Leah Peoples. It appears that someone or a group of people were abducting and murdering women and girls in the desert on the West Mesa of Albuquerque. Now, before I go any further, I want to honor these victims. Their names were Jamie Barella, Monica Candelaria, Victoria Chavez, Virginia Cloven, Solania Edwards, Doreen Marquez, Julie Nieto, Veronica Romero, Evelyn Salazar, Michelle Valdez, and Cinnamon Elks. These murders would be known as the West Mesa Murders. They were buried between 2001 and 2005, with the last victim being buried a year before Leah went missing. Although Leah wasn't found here, I don't think we can rule out the idea that she may have been a victim of the same perpetrator or group of perpetrators. These murders are absolutely nothing short of horrific, and it could be an entire episode if not an entire series. Each one of these victims have their own stories and families who miss them dearly. It's so hard for me to just bring them up as kind of a footnote in Leah's story because they all do deserve their own dedicated attention, just like Leah. But we are talking about Leah today, so I'm just going to focus on how this could relate to her disappearance. There's a lot of speculation out there about who could have done this, but one article in particular caught my eye. It was written by Diana Washington Valdez for the El Paso Times. She speaks with several of the families of these victims, as well as families of other missing and murdered women in the area. Basically, these families say that they've been told that the West Mesa murders weren't committed by a single perpetrator, but a group of drug dealers and dirty cops. They also say that they'd heard rumors of cops taking sex workers into the desert, raping them, and leaving them there to make their own way back home. Again, these are just rumors. But the reason I bring it up is because, if you remember, the cafe that Leah was supposed to work at, the cafe where she met that man that she went on the date with, it was known as a popular spot for police officers. Now, it seems obvious that Leah probably knew some drug dealers in the area, but could she have also met some officers at the cafe that didn't have good intentions? I don't know. There could be absolutely nothing to this theory. But I saw the statements from these families and connected it to Leah being in the area with drug activity and police. So I felt like I at least had to mention it. She also certainly fits the bill for the victims being preyed upon in these murders. In July 2009, then police chief Ray Schultz announced that they had five suspects for this case. But a few months later, that was reduced to just a handful of suspects. Ultimately, no arrests have been made for these murders. Police also believe that several other disappearances could be linked to these killings. They just haven't been able to connect the dots just yet. A few years later, Detective Lopez was actually assigned to a task force in this area, so I have to hope that she kept an eye out for Leah. The same year these victims were found, John Peebles told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, The reason I've gone out so many times looking myself is I just felt no one would look for her harder than I would. We've had some detectives give their time and look, and there's been a lot of well-wishing people, but people come and go. They help you for a while, and that's fine, but no one can stick with you through the long haul. That's just the way it is. End quote. I cannot begin to explain how much I relate with that statement. Eventually, the Warrens moved away from New Mexico to Colorado. And the peoples would leave Leah's childhood home, but ultimately, they did stay in Fort Worth. Now, while John wasn't out physically looking for Leah, he was advocating for her online. But remember, this is the late 2000s. Social media wasn't like it is today. From what I could find, it looks like John mostly used a blog to advocate and speak directly to Leah. I'm going to read you some of these posts. And you're just going to have to bear with me if I cry here, because it is nothing short of heartbreaking. But you guys, these are the real stories. This is a real story, and it is heartbreaking. On June 21st, 2007, John writes, I love you with all my heart, Sugar Plum. Mom and I miss you so badly. I wanted you to know that we're searching for you every day. We will never give up. Come home, sweetheart. On January 12, 2008, it reads, Please help us. Leah's grandmother is dying. If anyone, anyone knows where Leah is, please ask her to call her parents. As of Thursday, January 10, 2008, Leah's grandmother has been given 24 to 48 hours to live. She is in hospice care, and the family would like your help in passing the word to find Leah and ask her to call home. Can we also request your help in keeping this message going by passing it on every few hours on your bulletin pages? Thank you so much for your help and support. The next update is January 16th, 2008, which, as you might remember, is Leah's birthday. Leah, your Nina just passed away at the very hour of your birth 25 years ago today. She loved you so much. I think she waited till this very hour because she loved you so much. I pray you are alive and well, sweetheart. Happy birthday, Sugar Plum. Please come home. The next update comes from March 23rd, 2008. Honey, I want you to know that I will never give up looking for you. I have no idea if you even look at your page anymore, but just in case you do, know that I still love you more than life itself. We all miss you dearly. I also want you to know that you now have a handsome nephew. He reminds me of how beautiful you were when you were born. You're still the most beautiful daughter that any father could have, and I remain as proud of you as I ever have been. You're perfect just as you are and always will be. The last update comes from September 7th, 2009. Another holiday without Leah. Today is the final day of my road trip to look for Leah. I've been to Albuquerque, Phoenix, and Las Vegas this time. I was accompanied by America's Most Wanted for about half the trip as they filmed some things I've been doing to look for my precious Leah. Unfortunately, it looks like I'll go home empty-handed again without her. Leah, I miss you so badly. And please forgive my failures as a father. And know that I love you with all my heart. And would give anything to bring you back home where you belong. I know that was tough, guys. Sorry, I've read that about a thousand times and I can't do it without crying. That is real emotion right there in those words. John Peebles would state that his life pretty much ended the day that Leah went missing. He spent the rest of his life looking for his daughter. Unfortunately, John Peebles passed away in a motorcycle accident at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota in 2013. In his obituary, it states that he is survived by Leah. Detective Lopez says that Leah's case will never be closed until they find her. Which brings me right to our call to action. You guys, we have to continue this fight for Leah. Although John is gone, as far as I could find, Leah's mother and two brothers are still out there. And we know that Leah has at least one nephew. If you felt anything from this episode, from those statements from Leah's dad, please share. This call to action is so easy, you guys. Just share Leah's picture. You never know who might see it. It could be that one person who has the final piece to the puzzle. So Leah's family can finally get some answers. And so John Peebles can rest in peace. Leah Peebles went missing from Albuquerque, New Mexico on May 22, 2006, at the age of 23. She would be 38 years old now and might be going by the name Maya. She is a white female approximately 5 foot, 4 inches tall, and weighs about 105 pounds. She has blue eyes and brown hair that she cuts and colors a lot. She does have a few tattoos, including a scroll flower design on her upper back and a Celtic cross on her lower back. If you have any information about Leah Peebles, please call the Albuquerque Police Department at 505-242-2677. But, as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. welcome to the secret after show moment. I'm literally still drying my tears. I'm sorry, guys. I really tried to get through that part without crying. Like I had to stop myself. It, it took me like 20 minutes to just read those statements and, and keep calming myself down. So I, I know it sounds emotional, um, but it's literally the best I could do. Those words, man, they, they cut. Um, yeah, this episode, hit me different. Um, I of course felt for Leah, right? It's, it's really sad when she went through, you know, from a kid growing up and all that trauma, it's so hard. Um, but I also just, I felt for John, you know, he tried so hard and he was so kind to Leah, you know, it's not every parent that will see a kid go through that, that'll help a kid go through that really. And just turn around and say, I accept you and I love you for whoever you are, no matter what's happened. I know that people have, you know, their different opinions about these parents and how they handled, um, you know, the sexual abuse that Leah encountered, suffered through. But I don't know. I think John Peoples cared a lot. A lot more than a lot of parents I don't know. I just needed a second here to decompress. Um, Hopefully that helped you too. I don't have anything incredibly exciting to tell you this week. Um, I do want to say happy Thanksgiving if you celebrate. Um, But as always, thank you for tolerating me. I love you and I'll talk to you next time.